there's only one state this year that really has high profile pipeline protests going on. That's Minnesota. 30 years ago this week, the Line 3 pipeline in northern Minnesota ruptured, spilling 1.7 million gallons of crude oil into a frozen river near Grand Rapids, Minnesota. If the river had not been frozen, the oil could have seeped into the Mississippi River and contaminated drinking water for millions downstream. Protests have been ongoing to stop construction rerouting a section of the Line 3 pipeline, which could impact indigenous communities and local waterways. Hello and welcome to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. You might have heard recently about the Line 3 pipeline project in Minnesota. Some people are calling it the next standing rock because it's been at the center of protests for years, particularly from indigenous tribes in the area. Activist and author Winona LaDuc has been involved in that fight for seven years. Here she is talking to PBS News about it earlier this month. I'm a grandmother. You know, and we're standing out there, I have six charges against me for this pipeline. And there's a bunch of us that are facing charges for, you know, trying to be a water protector. Leduc and others have been part of the seven-year fight opposing the project throughout the state and federal review processes. It is the largest tar sands pipeline in the world. This pipeline is the equivalent to 50 new coal-fired power plants. So, you know, if you're trying to save the planet, this is not the way to do it. I couldn't get to Minnesota myself. I'm not vaccinated yet, so I don't want to impose myself on the community. Plus, I have kids. But also, this is one of those stories where I want to hear from local and particularly Native journalists. I did want to see, though, whether the evolving Line 3 story dovetailed it all with something else I've been tracking. Fossil fuel-backed anti-protest bills. I've written about this a few times. A bunch of other journalists have done some great reporting on it as well. There's some good stuff in HuffPost and The Intercept. I'll drop some links in the show notes for those of you who want to read more. These bills have been passed in 14 states now and proposed in about half the states in the country. They differ a little bit from state to state, but in general, they increase the fines and jail time associated with trespassing dramatically. They often bump trespassing up from a misdemeanor to a felony. And they seem to be specifically targeting organizers and the organizations they work with, with steep penalties for organizing or training activists who then trespass. So even if the organizer isn't there at the protest, they can still be charged. And it turns out there are six, six anti-protest bills making their way through the Minnesota state legislature right now. Some of them are bundled together, so it amounts to four different legislative packages. But still, that's a lot. That's important because on top of cracking down on pipeline protests, there's growing concern that these bills will be used to quell other sorts of protests, too. And remember, Minnesota was ground zero for last summer's Black Lives Matter protest in the days after police murdered George Floyd. To talk about Minnesota's proposals, where these laws came from in general, and how they're moving through the country right now, I asked researcher Connor Gibson to join me. He's been keeping tabs on these bills really since they started to pick up steam in the wake of the Standing Rock protests. That conversation coming up right after this quick break.
Environmental justice is a talking point in every politician's toolkit. But do you ever wonder where it all began? On this week's Throughline, we're taking you back to 1978, where a fight against a toxic dump in North Carolina started the environmental justice movement. Join NPR's Climate Week and listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this show, you are probably at least climate curious. And one thing that I get asked all the time is, okay, I understand that this is a big problem. We need to act now, but what can I do? The climate crisis can feel like such a huge, overwhelming problem, which is why this April, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and the Climate Reality are holding a free training on what's happening with the climate and what we can personally do. And actually, I'm going to be part of that training. It all happens in New York City, April 12th through the 14th, and it's going to be big, really big. If you want to know what climate change means for your future, your career, your part of the country or the world, this training is for you. You'll get to hear straight from former U.S. Vice President Al Gore, and a lineup of incredible thought leaders, scientists, experts, and more at the top of their fields. I'll be doing a training on climate disinformation as part of this. You'll come away with a real understanding of what's happening to the planet and the skills to make a difference. If you complete the training, you'll join the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, a community of nearly 50,000 change makers all over the world. To learn more and apply, visit climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. That's climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. I hope to see you there. It seems like all of a sudden the pace has picked up again. Um, but I don't know if that's just like a feeling or if that's actually <laughs> what's happened. So I'm curious to see um, what you've seen on that front. Yes, it is the case that these fossil fuel infrastructure anti-protest bills are currently um, gaining steam in the 2021 legislative sessions of many states. Mm. I think the main difference between this year and last year is Last year, the pandemic really just messed up the strategy. Um, we still saw plenty of bills and laws passed in 2020, but I think it's it was reduced by the impact of the pandemic, the confusion and cancellations and delays that caused the state legislatures. So I suspect what we're seeing in 2021 is um, a lot of what companies intended to do last year. They just weren't able to do as much as quickly as they would have liked. Um, but that said, bills still passed in the law during the pandemic in West Virginia, in Kentucky. Um, And this year we're seeing more states continue the trend, including some states that failed to pass bills last year, like Illinois, like Alabama. Um, And there's only one state this year that really has high profile pipeline protests going on. That's Minnesota. Right. Line three um, revamp uh, being done by Enbridge um, and being hastened along by many other players in the oil industry mm-hmm. makes the situation a little bit more relevant and urgent in Minnesota than in other states. You know, I can't tell right. you why 
Arkansas cares so much <laughs> to felonize <laughs> pipeline protest. Their big um, pipeline uh, resistance kind of happened a couple of years ago with the Diamond Pipeline. Right. Um, Connor, was that, did that come into play in Oklahoma too? Was it the same pipeline, the Diamond Pipeline? I want to say yes. Yep, it was. I checked. So in early 2017, local newspapers in Arkansas and Oklahoma were reporting that tribes, mostly in Oklahoma, did not approve of the Diamond Pipeline and that several indigenous activists planned to protest it. There was a lot of hand-wringing about whether this would be the quote-unquote next standing rock. Noticing a theme here. In February 2017, Oklahoma Representative Scott Biggs proposed the anti-protest bill that the rest would be based on. Here's a bit of tape from that session. The person you'll hear pushing Biggs for answers is Representative Corey Williams. Uh, This issue has definitely risen to the level of concern here in Oklahoma, uh, given our state's status as an oil producer, energy producer, and what's going on in other states. So... Uh, We took what happened or what bill we passed last year with the critical infrastructure bill regarding flying drones over refineries or Cushing or uh, places like that, and we've now expanded that uh, to provide some greater protection for those those critical infrastructures that are necessary for the state to operate. So the proposed committee sub uh, basically lines out trespassing, uh, helps define what critical infrastructure is, and provides some for uh, some enhanced penalties for damage caused by trespassing. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chair. Uh, when I was looking through some of the definitions on this, and I re- um, a lot of them I can see, but a couple of them I thought, well, that's pretty open-ended if we wanted to prosecute it. Like, it just says railroad tracks. That's, uh, uh, that's a pretty open-ended thing to consider to be critical infrastructure. Um, that would have this enhanced penalty along with it. I mean, I understand like a power generation facility and, and substations and things like that. I guess my question is twofold. Um, do you think that a couple of these definitions might be a little bit open-ended and allow some abusive prosecution? Uh, and then secondly, can you tell, uh, can you elaborate more on, you said that this has risen to the level of, of a need. Can you describe the incident that or incidents that have Brought absolutely. It to the forefront. Uh, answer your questions. Number one, absolutely not. I do not believe that prosecutors are abusive in their discretion, in their role, and their function to protect the state. I know you disagree with me on that, and we have for four years, but uh, no, they're not abusive in their discretion. Um, no, I do not disagree, you know, agree with you that these definitions are open-ended. Uh, I believe that if you have an issue with the rail industry, I'm pretty sure the rail industry could demonstrate how they're vital to Oklahoma. You know, there in Cushing, just south of your district, is extremely vital, the oil and gas industry, for all the rail that's pumping in uh, this crude oil because the pipelines have been protested, the pipelines haven't been built, so now they're using rail to move that oil, uh, to move those products into our state. The Oklahoma bill was pointed to as the one that all the other bills were modeled after, but not without some help from the fossil fuel industry. In fact, industry reps were there the day Oklahoma's bill was introduced, ready to answer questions. In your last response, I didn't actually hear you elaborate on the incidents. Was it just the, the, the pipeline incident or 
I, I don't think they did damage to property, but obviously they're... I'm pretty sure they did a whole lot of damage to property in North Dakota. Okay, is and that what please, we're talking yes, about? Yes, please join. If you, okay. you want to learn more, we actually have a, a meeting here at 4 o'clock today with some individuals uh, from North Dakota that are here to talk to us, uh, talk to the industry about what they're having to deal with the aftermath of those protesters up there. It's 4 o'clock. Representative McBride is sponsoring that uh, open meeting to the public. Um, but yes, that is the, the main reason behind this. So there's a bit of background on the origins of these bills. Now back to my conversation with Connor for more. Okay, so actually maybe I'll have you back up a little bit and give folks a, a brief sort of history of these bills that, you know, they sort of started to appear with the Oklahoma bill shortly after Standing Rock and very much were a reaction to that protest. Sure thing. Um, I'm actually going to take us way back in time to September 11th, 2001, terrible day Ooh. in mm-hmm. world history, um, when the World Trade Centers went down and the Pentagon was attacked um, and the country was in a state of fear and confusion and very much ready to accept some draconian government restrictions um, in the name of our national security and not having to live through anything like that again. There were some industries that were starting to have this kind of conversation. Um, And the first more coherent uh, discussion that I saw about critical infrastructure um, and upping penalties for people that are trespassing on it or near it or certainly damaging any of the equipment, um, those conversations, as far as I can tell, were starting to happen in 2003. 2004. There was a law that was passed in Louisiana, Act 157, um, that set in motion the idea that there would be heightened penalties um, for trespassing on critical infrastructure sites. I don't think oil pipelines were included at first in that Louisiana law. They added that in 2015. Um, But at that point, uh, some companies, including oil companies, started talking about this. And there is a group that's similar to ALEC, um, but not nearly as captured and partisan, called the Council of State Governments. It is a bipartisan consortium of state legislators. Um, They do produce some model um, legislation in a way that's similar to ALEC, but in addition to working in ways that are much more broad um, than ALEC does, a, a, a bunch of different kinds of legislative trainings and working groups on various issues. The Council of State Governments produced a um, a report that was financed by BP and others mm. that embellished upon some of this. And then I couldn't really tell you what happens between 2006 and 2015. As far as my research went, there didn't seem to be any major events, but 2015, and this is before Standing Rock mm-hmm. um, and before the Dakota Access Pipeline was being hotly protested, Louisiana started updating that critical infrastructure law that it had passed in 2004. Um, Interesting. And it wasn't until 2017, the end of the year, December, that the American Legislative Exchange Council ended up creating a model bill, which is just to say that there were some states starting to field test different avenues with which to restrict oil and gas protesters specifically, including Alabama, including Michigan, including Washington. They just hadn't taken coherent shape 
in terms of this play that we're seeing now, where it's felony level penalties for people who are committing nonviolent acts of trespass, coupled with uh, compounded fines and jail sentences often for organizations or individuals who are found to be affiliated with those protesters. They don't have to have trespassed themselves. They don't have to have damaged anything themselves. If they're affiliated with somebody that did, they wind up being charged. And the first state to pass both of those things um, in a pretty clear and coherent way was Oklahoma in 2017. And that's mm-hmm. usually where this story starts in terms of people that are following and talking about the issue. But I, you know, I do think it's important to know that it didn't just explode randomly uh, or not so randomly, but in reaction to Standing Rock, there was activity happening in a lot of these states leading up to that point. And uh, in 2017, things really became codified into the strategy that we've seen. It was later that year, the American Legislative Exchange Council passed its model bill um, internally within itself um, at a meeting in December of Mm -hmm. that year. And there's Mm -hmm. really... There was some excellent reporting that was done that actually has really helped inform and understand how this trend took off. There was a letter that was written to the legislators who participated in that specific ALEC meeting in December 2017. Mm -hmm. They had not yet approved this critical infrastructure felony law, um, template law yet. And the American Chemistry Council, which is chemical manufacturers, lobbyists, and the Edison Electric Institute, which is electric utility lobbyists, and the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, which is the refinery companies, um, in addition to Marathon Petroleum and the American Gas Association, which is gas utility companies, they all signed a letter to Alex legislators and said, please make a model bill out of this. Do it at this meeting. Do it in the next few days. And they listed a bunch of reasons justifying why a law was needed. <laughs> One of the examples used was the, was the valve turners, a nonviolent protest um, that occurred uh, in order to stop development of the Keystone XL pipeline. And and, and uh, the the uh, valve turners example was the only example that was used by these lobbyists to justify these laws that didn't have to do actually with oil industry ex-employees or people suffering from serious incidents of mental illness committing acts of sabotage against wow. oil and gas infrastructure. So much like we're seeing with the Capitol riots where George Floyd gets murdered by police, a bunch of time goes by, Republicans you know, theorize about ways to punish the people who are reacting in outrage to the murder of black and brown people in this country. Uh, by police officers. Then the Capitol riots happen. A bunch of white supremacists storm the Capitol. <laughs> and now we're going to be passing anti-riot laws to go after ba- black people, essentially, for the sins committed by white nationalists. This trend in the oil and gas industry uh, struck me as starkly similar. They're justifying uh, going after environmental protesters who are largely uh, nonviolent uh committing acts of civil disobedience in order to stop the fossil fuel build out and blaming them with behavior that actually was, had nothing to do with environmental activism. Some of the tribal groups in Montana who protested the bill that is currently making its way through that legislature, a terrible, terrible bill, max sentence of 30 years in prison, max fines of $1.5 million. If you are found linked to somebody who was arrested under those offenses. 
Um, it's, you know, the, an individual protester in Montana would be subject to a max fine of $150,000, which is atrocious. That is way bigger than most of these states. The penalties in these states, which are draconian enough, tends to cap around like twenty dollars or $25,000. Montana has upping it to $150,000, but times 10 if you are found to be a supporter of a protester arrested. And of course, Keystone XL cuts through at least one of the reservations in Montana. Um, and uh, I believe that's the Flathead Tribal Reservation. The, wow. the, the bill was protested in committee by a lot of different indigenous uh, peoples from different tribal nations and different uh, native organizations, nonprofits in Montana. And they were all concerned not only um, about the ongoing uh, fight over Keystone XL, but just once a law is on the books, who knows what it will be used um, to punish people for in regard to any future infrastructure project, you know, that qualifies right. for critical infrastructure. And it's quite broad, right? The definition of critical infrastructure. <laughs> yes. And I would have to look at Montana's definitions again, because all of the states are a little bit different, but yeah. roughly following the trend that was set forth by the state of Oklahoma and by the American Legislative Exchange Council's model bill. Right. Uh, it includes utility, infrastructure, um, electric transmission lines. It includes pipelines of all kinds. It includes water infrastructure. Some of them include dams. In Louisiana, levees was attempted to be added to the definitions last year, which failed. That's right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, gas compressor stations, refineries, um, export terminals, pretty much everything you can think of that is dirty energy uh, infrastructure qualifies as critical under this bill. Right, right. I do wonder um, how much some of these laws could be used to tamp down on various other types of protests like uh, the Black Lives Matter protests. Some new research done, and I'm not sure if it's out there yet or not, around um, some groups that have, you know, been looking at what Gibson Dunn has done in response both to indigenous tribes in Ecuador suing Chevron and to um, the the Standing Rock protests against their client, Energy Transfer Partners, um, and using RICO. I, d I definitely hear echoes of in these um, in these anti-protest laws, especially the the recent ones where they're going after the quote unquote organizers. There's it, it the plot thickens, Amy, because in the bill that's currently being considered in Kansas, and it has already passed the Senate in Kansas. It actually has a hearing in the House tomorrow, which is March seventeenth. Um, that bill includes a RICO provision. And wow. that, I believe, is the first overlap between um, corporations using racketeering, anti-mafia laws um, to go after their critics or attorneys representing plaintiffs that inconvenience them or whatever it might be, and mm -hmm. these anti-protest, um, the fossil fuel anti-protest laws specifically. I believe RICO is also um, starting to creep into the broader trend of riot redefinition anti-protesting mm -hmm. laws where you find the lowest common common denominator way to accuse somebody of rioting and then you get to charge them with very, very serious felonies. And if, if some of these states succeed, you know, potentially racketeering implication as well, you know, as if 
Hmm. The civil disobedience is organized crime. In very simple terms, that is the attempt that's underway, is to redefine civil disobedience as organized crime. And people should know that the RICO laws were created to, to deal with the mob. Yeah, I'm sorry. Just like, you know, even the more extreme, and I I don't even want to use that word because there's no explosions or violence or threats involved, but like an activist cutting a fence or throwing a carpet over the razor wire and trespassing or even shutting off a pipeline valve, I'm sorry, that's not like walking into somebody's store and breaking their kneecaps for not paying their dues that month. It's, there's right. nothing <laughs> that's right. similar or even nearly as threatening about that. Do you have a, a count of how many states have enacted these laws and then how many are sort of in play right now? I do. Okay. There are a total of 14 states that have so far passed the fossil fuel infrastructure anti-protest bills mm. um, since 2017. The most wow. recent one was in uh, 2021, but the, the fight actually started years previous, and that's Ohio. They just passed a law in January. That bill carried over from the previous year. After that, we've seen bills pop up in Minnesota for a grand total of six <laughs> bills. I don't wow. know if they're just really disorganized or what. Some of them are concurrent. So it's really, it's basically four legislative packages in Minnesota mm -hmm. in the form of six in bills. Minnesota. That's and, really interesting to me in the context of the Line 3 protests right now. Um, does Is there any sense that like the number of proposals or the movement on them um, it, like recently is connected to some sort of reaction to that protest? That's a great question. I'm going to say my gut tells me yes, because mm -hmm. in 2018, there was only one bill. In 2019, there yeah. were two bills, and I believe they were... Um, they might have been concurrent. And in 2020, there were also two bills. And then suddenly this year, there's six. Um, there's also, there's a little bit of difference between some of them. Um, some of the bills are more focused on the felonies for the individuals, um, including the loophole um, that you're trespassing on a fossil fuel infrastructure facility with the intent to impede or inhibit, or in another bill, with the intent to disrupt the operation. I'm going to go ahead and say a aggressive prosecutor would slap me with a felony charge um, if I was sitting in front of a road because that would impede or inhibit the operation of the facility or disrupt the operation. So that's like, that's where the loophole is here, right? They frame this mm -hmm. as if it's about property damage, as if it's about violence. Guess what? All of that's already illegal everywhere. It has been. Right. <laughs> all of this nation's recent history and all of the state's recent history. You can't hurt people. You can't blow stuff up. You can't damage property. You can't trespass. There are mm -hmm. laws on the books to deal with those things. Mm -hmm. So what these bills really aim to change, and the, the Minnesota bills illustrate it well, is that there is a loophole put in there that if you're um, disrupting or interrupting the facility in some minor way, you're on the hook for the same level felony offense that is normally reserved for somebody who is abusing or hurting another human being. Yeah. I think that's a that's a good way to put it and an important thing for people to understand that like it's not like in the absence of these bills there has just been uh you know 
blanket permissiveness for trespassing and property damage. Yeah, these activists that have been protesting, you know, the people in Standing Rock, in addition to getting blasted by the cops' water cannons and freezing cold temperatures and attacked by dogs and having their arms blown off by concussion grenades and stuff like that, like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the people who are arrested, like, pre- trespassing in those situations, they do end out having to get charged with things and, and they do end up having to fight that out in court. And I, I know that for skeptics of like kind of protest culture and this, like perhaps what's seen as a really self-righteous liberalism to stand up for what's right, that, that really irks some people. But I, I don't think they think about how the people who engage in acts of civil dif- disobedience really have a lot of shit to deal with after that happens. Or I'll use myself as an example, right? Like I, People are annoyed that somebody like me, this college-educated ed- white kid, like goes and protests the Keystone XL pipeline in 2011 mm-hmm. at the White House, which I did. It was a mass civil disobedience. We all got arrested. We went to jail. We didn't have to go to a cell. We just had to pay our $100 post and forfeit, and we got to leave, you know? But in many of these situations, that is not what happens. You go to jail. You get held. You get out. You have to talk with lawyers. You have to show up for court hearings. You know, several months to several years of your life is potentially disrupted. Even if you don't end up going to prison or paying thousands of dollars in fines, you you lose a lot of time and you lose a lot of money um, in order to take that principled stand. So it's not just a bunch of spoiled kids that don't have to deal with any consequence and they're really abusing, uh, you know, major loopholes in our legal system. They are mm-hmm. accepting those consequences. Right. Or the the kind of higher calling of saying, no, more fossil fuel infrastructure is not okay. More oil spills are not okay. Mm-hmm. More disruption to the sovereignty of indigenous nations whose treaties we have violated over and over and over again is not okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you you were saying there's, uh, the Minis- there's four different legislative packages that are kind of in play in Minnesota. Right. And they're all aimed in, in differing ways at felonies for individual violators, as well as going after people affiliated with them mm-hmm. um, as well. So you don't even necessarily have to commit the crimes. And this is, you know, so if you're a, a Sierra Club or a, a Greenpeace or um, any other organization, maybe the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, and you're, you've like been on email threads with these activists, it raises the question, are you liable for the crimes they commit? Like, Hmm. some fool i met could go do something like spray paint um a piece of equipment and you know that that just strikes me as exceptionally unfair that i could possibly held be held to account for that thing that i didn't give permission to be affiliated with and i wouldn't have recommended and yada yada so that's a big part of the problem with these in kansas uh there is a similar bill as I believe I said earlier that is passed out of one of the legislative chambers and it has a hearing tomorrow. There are some groups locally opposing it. Uh, Kansas Interfaith Action has testified against the bill. The Kansas Sierra Club has testified against the bill and showing up against them, of course, is the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, mm-hmm. um, as well as the Wichita regional chamber. I'm going to go ahead and guess <laughs> pretty much means Coke Industries and Cessna. Uh-huh. I don't know who else in Wichita is a particularly large company. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that Cessna doesn't care about this law. So Wichita nope. chamber probably. <laughs> the lobbyist did mention, we've heard a lot from our members about this one. And I was like, yeah, I, I bet I can tell you which one. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other bills are in Montana. That law is 
being supported again by trade associations that represent many of the usual suspects, TransCanada, Enbridge, ExxonMobil. It's the but it's being done through uh, groups that are not quite so obviously. So in Montana, uh, one of the groups that is supporting the anti-protest law is called the Treasure State Resource Association of Montana. <laughs> And the Treasure State Resource Association, it turns out, represents oil and gas companies, among amongst others. Um, I saw the American Chemistry Council is in there. Enbridge and ExxonMobil are members. Um, wow. And then the Montana Petroleum Association also supporting the bill in Montana. And I believe it's pretty much the same oil companies that are the members of the Montana Petroleum Association as well. The other mm-hmm. states that are considering bills... Alabama and Arkansas. In Alabama, that bill has not yet moved. Arkansas's bill has passed uh, in the House and hmm. is working its way through the Senate. I could not tell you in either of those states who is advocating for it. Um, if, if those states disclose that information, I haven't been able to find it. They certainly don't disclose it. And lobbying registrations, although I can't say that uh, Coke has registered to lobby in both of those states. Hmm. Um, I noticed. And then the the kind of outlier, the state that I'm afraid um, will pique a little too much interest for some of the wrong reasons, is Illinois, because a Democrat is sponsoring the bill in Illinois. And that has been the situation in Illinois since the beginning. So in Illinois, as well as Wisconsin, there has been a a different strategy than has been used in most other states. And that is the oil industry appeals to local trade unions mm-hmm. and puts the messaging in their hands. This is exactly what happened in Wisconsin. I'm not sure about Illinois. The American Petroleum Institute put messaging and talking points into the hands of the local trade unions who then lobbied Democrats in the legislature um, and championed the law that passed in Wisconsin. In Illinois, I suspect the trend is similar because just in the last 36 hours, um, in addition to Enbridge and the American Petroleum Institute and some Illinois-based uh, lobbying organizations, there are a lot of trade unions that have just signed on in support of the bill in Illinois. Mm. There was supposed to be a hearing today, and I heard that this bill was taken out of the, the calendar for discussion. I don't, I don't know why. I don't have more details, but um, yeah, it means I have no idea of what direction the bill is heading towards. I don't know if that indicates there was some sort of conflict or, or stall or if, you know, um, it's, it's just, a there was some procedural reason why they delayed. Uh, but I would keep my eyes out for Illinois. They, they tried to pass a law in 2019. It went through one of the legislative chambers, but not the other. And, uh, and I'm sure they're going to try and fight like hell again this year to get a law in the books. Cause this is the third year in the row that they've, uh, they've tried pushing bills through Illinois. Hmm. That's interesting. Thank you so much for spending um, spending this time with me. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat.
Okay, that's it for this time. Again, I will post links to other stories about these bills in the show notes. There will also be a story on the drillednews.com website with more on these anti-protest bills. We've covered this there a couple of other times in the past as well. If you know about something like this happening in your state or you've heard interesting things about it, feel free to shoot me a line. You can reach me at amy at drillednews.com or on Twitter at Amy Westerbelt or at We Are Drilled. If you would like to get ad-free episodes of this podcast, think about becoming a Patreon sponsor. That's at patreon.com slash drilled. You'll get ad-free episodes. I often drop episodes there early. We're going, we do some bonus content there and you also have access to exclusive drilled merchandise. Big thank you to some of our latest sponsors, Stephanie Cass, Luke Austin, Jason Grant, Rachel Lauer, Aaron O'Day, Douglas Potter, Stavros Papavasilou, Dan Davis, The Soist Society, Amy Giesbers Van Week, Daniel Osiander. Thank you guys. You're really keeping us going here. I am reporting the next narrative season got a couple more interviews left to do on that it's going to be a deep dive on natural gas where that term came from how it became the quote-unquote bridge fuel that the industry talks about it as today and what it has to do with the plastics boom make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you won't miss that when it's ready and please drop us a rating or review if you get a minute it really helps us find new listeners. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.